Our Father, we're grateful for the time that you've given us together in these three weeks to uh, wrestle and think after the revelation of yourself in the Son by the Holy Spirit, your triune character. And we do know, Lord, we are fully aware that our finite brains, our limited language, only, Lord, scratches the surface of the complexity and the beauty of your singular being, who you are. But Lord, we want a big view of you. We want a big view of God because, Lord, um, our lives are complicated as well. And so I pray that you'll help us in this time to listen, to hear. And Lord, I pray where there's confusion that you'll bring some clarity. And I pray, Lord, where confusion remains, that you will give us hope and belief. And we ask these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to you all. We're uh, in the thick of it. I, I, I uh, sat in the car. She, my wife's not here. She's uh, with the kids right now with some play that's going on. And um, I asked her last week, I said, well, how, how, give me some feedback on this morning. And she says, well, that was a lot. No, that was her response. Um, so I want to do some recapping. I th- you know, this is, you know, when you deal with something like the doctrine of the Trinity, it is a little bit is like putting one's mouth to a fire hydrant. Um, there's just a lot to, to take in, a lot to digest, and um, and so I'm, I want to sort of put it in reverse, and then we'll put it back into third gear. Um, last week, we, I really tried to emphasize three things, and I want to give you a little bit more handle on that this morning, or at least restate it. And the three big issues that I talked about last week were primarily related to how we think and how we know and then also the way in which the Old Testament pressures and constrains our understanding of the Trinity. In other words, the doctrine of the Trinity is not something that we have to turn away from with the Old Testament with red flushed cheeks. In fact, the battle for the Trinity is a battle for the Bible. It's a battle for the Old Testament. So, the first big matter was the matter of how we know the distinction that Augustine made in his classic work on the Trinity between faith and reason. And if you remember, when we talked about this, this, this distinction between faith and reason, we tried to go at it from the angle that I think Augustine was after as well, and that is valuing and, 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 and signifying the strong distinction between the Creator and the creation, between the Creator and the creature. That, that really gets us out of the gate Whenever we begin to talk about God, the distinction between God as creator and you and me and the world around us as creation. The world around us is not an emanation of God. God is distinct from the world that He created. That's, that's significant. And because that is the case, because the world is what it is and God is who He is, in the language of the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, there's an infinite qualitative distinction between those two. If that's true, then that leaves us with a significant problem about knowledge, about how we can even know, about how we can even begin to put a verb and a subject together and make a sentence about who God is. How do I even get out of the gate speaking about God? Reason says we will try to build our knowledge of God from the created world around us and move toward Him. And what often happens in that is a projection of our own selves, our own being, onto God. By the way, this is a little off, off, off the, uh, my, my uh, manuscript this morning. But this happens as well with Jesus studies too. 
the search for the historical Jesus. You know, we just went through that season of Lent and Easter when there's so many Jesus specials on, and the talking heads come out. I, I, I refer to it as Barnes & Noble Christianity because all those books are there. Um, and, and there's a lot of help to be found. I don't want to dismiss all of that. There's a lot of help to be found with, with uh, the various scholarly approaches to Jesus. But in this quest for the historical Jesus, who Jesus really was, right? The, uh, the surprising thing with these various quests, there was a first quest, and then a second quest, and now there's a third quest uh, that's going on. In all these various quests for Jesus, the surprising thing is that Jesus ends up looking alarmingly similar to the ones who are actually looking for Him. In the first quest for the historical Jesus, um, Albert Schweitzer, who um, was an incredible a philanthropist. He was a doctor. Apparently, he was a pianist. I mean, this was an amazing man. Um, but he was also an, an enormously productive New Testament scholar as well. And who does Jesus end up looking like? A kind of philanthropist, Renaissance man, a lot like um, uh, Albert Schweitzer himself was. There's a problem with this when we begin to build from the ground up in our knowledge of God or our knowledge of Jesus, we begin to project. Now, there's a sense in which that cannot be completely avoided. This is the work of the Spirit, which we'll get to today. But we, we, we run that danger. So we resist a kind of rationalistic approach to the doctrine of God. Why? Because a rationalistic approach that's driven and governed by the canons of modernity, by the canons of our own logic, are inevitably going to come into a dead end and a brick wall when it comes to God. It's, it's going to happen. Because the threeness in oneness and the oneness in threeness, both of those that must be affirmed and neither one can be attenuated or made thin of, both of those statements, God is one and He is three, those statements together do not work on the level of a kind of uh, modern rationalistic mind. The hurdles are high for belief. They're high. And this is where Augustine and the whole tradition comes into play and says, and that's why it is extremely important that we can confess on the front end, God speaks. He has spoken. That creator-creature divide has not been bridged by our building a Tower of Babel up. We heard uh, Canon Pearson refer to that this morning. That didn't turn out so well. Right? We don't build our Tower of Babel up, but God comes down. And in His coming down, He speaks and He communicates to us because He loves us, because He created us, because He wants to redeem us. And He speaks. And He speaks in His Son by the Holy Spirit. That's how the Father communicates His own self to us. This is very important in this creator-creation uh, distinction or divide. God did not need us. I was again, there, there was an old poem. I can't remember the poem. But I remember it going something like, and he sat out in the stars or something to this effect. And, he, and why did he create? He was lonely and wanted someone to have fellowship with. Have you heard this before? God created humanity because he was lonely and wanted to have some fellowship. It's a bogus. Right? I mean, God in his eternal identity was a self-sustaining, self-sufficient intercommunication, eternal intercommunication of love. He needed nothing outside of himself to fulfill himself. He doesn't need that. The creation was not a necessity to the identity of God. It was not. So what does that mean the creation is? It's an act of his good grace. It's an indication of his beneficence, 
of His love, of His ability, and His determination to be a God that does not remain in Himself, but pushes outside of that toward you and me in acts of love and redemption and creation. It's a very, very important thing. You don't want God to need you. right? You don't want a God who needs you. You want a God who loves you, who moves toward you, who's gracious toward you. So that faith and reason distinction that we're making is a very important distinction that has to do with how we even get out of the gate in knowing and in knowledge. It's also why I think, and this might be helpful to you as you deal with people who struggle with the faith, and there are real struggles. I hope you give people um, the space to have these kinds of questions to wrestle with the complex things of Christian faith. I had one of these conversations recently with a a young man in our neighborhood who walks an Airedale Terrier around. Uh, We're big Airedale Terrier fans. So he's walking this Airedale Terrier around, and and he just starts asking these questions, big questions about faith and the Trinity. And, you know, it's it's not like you can just give a one, two, three, can't you see that now, right? I mean, doesn't that just all make perfect sense to you? There's a sense in which we have to recognize there is an infinite gap between proof and persuasion. There's a gap between being able to talk in a rational, holistic, thoughtful way about complex matters of the faith. There's an infinite gap between that and then someone saying, you know what, I believe. I believe that. And do you know how that gap is filled? Pentecost, we're in a good day for this, aren't we? That gap is filled by the work of the Holy Spirit, opening dead minds and dead hearts to believe and to receive so that we have the capacity to know and to love. So this is an ordering of our thinking, an ordering of the way in which we communicate, shaping our grammar, our Christian grammar, our theological talk, the way in which we view life according to God's revelation of Himself in Jesus Christ. It's also a recognition that the early church in its struggle to articulate a robust doctrine of God, leaning against the rocks on both sides that one can crash against, denying the threeness of God, denying the oneness of God. And there were options all out there for those. That that was a wrestling with the Bible. It was a wrestling with the way in which God had communicated Himself in Holy Scripture. Is Jesus really God? Did the Mount of Transfiguration really happen when all of a sudden, and I'm stealing my thunder because I'm going to come back to this, but when all of a sudden we see those disciples on the mountain and heaven breaks through? I was reading Mark's account this morning of this. His clothes became so white that no bleach could make clothes white like that. Isn't that a great rendering of that? It was so white, so bright, that we're actually giving a view into what we talked about last week in Ezekiel 1. There's the prophet ushered into the very throne room of God. And who does he see on the very throne of God but one who had the likeness of the Son of Man? And here we have Peter and James and John, and they're up on the Mount of Transfiguration. It breaks through. Peter does what Peter does. He starts saying foolish things. And again, in Mark's account, because he was terrified. I don't know. People just respond in different ways. Some people get really fearful, and they're just, you know, they go catatonic on you. Other people just start sort of talking. Peter was a talker. And so he's like, well, let's, let's just build some tabernacles and stay here. He didn't know what he was talking about. And then they fell on their faces because they were afraid. This is such a beautiful line. Moses and Elijah are there, and there's Jesus. He's transfigured. And when they lift their eyes, it's Jesus alone. He's left. I mean, heaven just broke through. Do you know what Jesus told them? Don't tell anybody about this. 
until after the resurrection of the dead. Wait till then. And that's what happened. I mean, that recognition that Jesus breaks through and reveals, that is a wrestling that the early church did. How is it that Jesus is fully God? And yet he says things like, I don't do anything of my own self, but only according to the will of the Father. Our reading that we heard this morning out of John chapter 14. How do we reckon those particular accounts of the Bible that speak about Jesus in his relation to the Father, but at the same time we see language that's used to talk about Jesus in his being? with the Father, co-substantial with the Father. So that when you said the Nicene Creed this morning, and you said we all said that, I believe in Jesus Christ, God of God, light of light, true God, very God, of one substance with the Father, one being with the Father, that kind of extra-biblical language, that's not Bible language. The Trinity is not a word that Strong's Concordance is going to yield for you. It's extra-biblical language, but it's extra-biblical language that's necessary to help us to adjudicate and make sense of inner biblical judgments. And that's a very important theological concept, I think, that there are necessary extra-biblical terms like consubstantial, the, the, the fancy Greek word there is homoousios. Just step back on this here. Homoousios, of one substance with the Father. The same essence, the same Godhead they share together in a mutual uh, relationship of love. Of one substance. Homoousios. Do you know that there were some who affirmed homoousios? If you know some Greek, that's one iota. Just a little letter. Homoousios. Homoousios. He's like the Father. Homoousios. And the the Orthodox, those who went out, the Nicene, those who affirmed Nicene uh, Trinitarian theology said, no, 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 to homoousios. It's homoousios of the same substance as the Father. One little letter. Those were the kind of debates that were going on. And they seem like debates over minutiae, one iota. But it's not a debate over minutia. It's a debate over the Bible. How is it that we hold together these statements that the Bible says without falling on the, without crashing on the rocks to the left or to the right? Number two. We talked last week about the Old Testament. And that in the Old Testament already there's a plurality of persons that we see within a unified singular being. We see terms that are predicated on other figures that are really unique to Yahweh, to God Himself, like the servant in Isaiah chapter 52, who's high and lifted up. Only Yahweh in the book of Isaiah is high and lifted up. And now we see the servant uh, being high and lifted up. We see the angel of the Lord show up in various situations and all of a sudden is speaking in first person as if He is the angel of the Lord, as as if He is Yahweh. We see the Word and the Spirit working with the, with the Father, with Yahweh, in an act of creation. Already within the Old Testament, we see this pressure that within the singularity of God's being, there's a plurality of persons at play. We also see in the Old Testament that there are anticipations of incarnation. Anticipations that God would enflesh Himself. There was a time, now this, this is, gets tricky, but let me put this out for you. There was a time when, when the second person of the Trinity was not man. There was never a time when the second person of the Trinity was not God. But there was a time when the second person of the Trinity was not man. The incarnation really happened in time and space. 
John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh. He took on something that was not proper to Him before. That's very important. And by the way, Jesus is flesh now. I, I, don't, I, don't, know if, I don't know if... Maybe it's crazy, but do you reflect on this thing about this? That It's important right now for your salvation that Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man now. He is a man now. I, I can't explain all that to you. It says a lot about God's space, and God, God's throne room, and what that looks like. And, and it's, a, it's a complete mystery to us. But God in Jesus is really man now. Fully man, fully God, in one person now and forevermore. It's very important. And we see anticipations of that in the Old Testament. In Genesis 18, this lone figure of these three angels who come to see Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre. And all of a sudden, one of them begins to speak, and it was not a surprise to Abraham at all that he was talking to God in an embodied form. He was embodied. We saw Ezekiel chapter 1, that the one sitting on the throne had the figure of the, of, of the likeness of man. We also, you know, the famous story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And there they all are in the fire. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, who's that fourth one there? In the form of a, of a person. All of these embodiments of God in the Old Testament anticipate for us. They're like lightning flashes in the Old Testament that flash up the sky and then it goes dark again in anticipation of what in time God would reveal Himself to be in fullness. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word tabernacled among us. And He took on flesh. And no one knew who the Father really was until the Word came in embodied form and revealed Him. We also saw, and this is the third thing last week, that the revelation of the divine name in the Old Testament was a revelation of God's own being and essence. My name reveals who I am. Exodus chapter 3. Who am I going to tell them uh, that's, that sent me. Who am I going to tell? What am I going to tell them when they say, "What is your name?" You tell them, "I am who I am." Sent you, or I will be who I will be. Exodus chapter six, verse two. And, and and Abraham and the patriarchs didn't know his name Yahweh. They only knew him as El Shaddai, the All Powerful One. But it's not true that they didn't know the name Yahweh. They knew the name, but they didn't know the substance of the name, the nature of the name. This presses us to ask questions about God's identity within the narrative of the Bible. See, we tend to, to begin, I, I think, we tend to begin God talk. When someone asks you, tell me about God. We tend to begin with these kind of abstract qualities, all of them which I believe are true. God is omniscient. He just knows everything. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. We begin with these kind of abstract notions, which, by the way, I confess every one of them to be true. But the way in which God leads in His revelation of Himself in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is to reveal His identity in His narrative engagement with His people in the story of redemption. Do you want to know who I am? Don't just begin with abstract what questions, the whatness of God, the being of God. Don't just begin there. Begin with who questions. Who is God? And how is the who-ness of God revealed? It's revealed in the narrative and plotment that God gives to us in Scripture. That's how we get to know the who of God. 
Who are you? I'm a God who moves toward my people in creation and redemption. That's who I am. And this, by the way, I think begins to unlock for us a great deal when we come to the New Testament. And we see Jesus in storied form. Does that ever bother you? I mean, you think about, I mean, some of you like Paul. I get this. I like Paul. Why, why do you like Paul? Well, Paul's kind of didactic. He's logical. Sometimes I wish it was more, but he's logical, right? I mean, he's making a kind of argument. He's giving us doctrine. But what do I get in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? I get the teachings of Jesus, the red letter stuff. It's in there. But I also get a story. By the way, let me just say, the red letters aren't more inspired than the other part. I want to make sure it's all important. Uh, but, the, the, but Jesus, he, he comes to us in storied form. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's how we get access to Jesus. In a story. This is, I, I think, quite fascinating. Um, one, one theologian of the 20th century named Hans Frey uh, was famous for saying, the gospel is the story and the story is the gospel. What did he mean by that? I don't think he was sort of tapping into a kind of new way of thinking. I think what Fry was trying to emphasize is that we do not get access to Jesus any other way than through the storied character of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's how you get access to Jesus. And by the way, if you want to understand who Jesus thought he was, which has been the source of a great amount of of controversy in the 20th century. If you want to get an a- access to who Jesus thought he was, Fry would say, you do that by looking closely at the narrative of the Gospels. Look at the Gospels. And look at what he says, and look at what he does. Look at him. Uh, don't try to reconstruct the psychology of Jesus. Don't psychoanalyze him. Don't try to, and this has become quite fashionable today, don't try to... S- make the claim that I'm going to understand Jesus if I can reconstruct the social world out of which He arose, if I can just recreate the social world of the first century, then I'll understand what Jesus, who Jesus really is. All that can be extremely helpful. I think it's very helpful. But I keep that stuff in the back seat of the car, not in the front seat of the car. Why? Because if I want to know who Jesus is, who He thought He was, who He claims to be, then I'm going to look into the Gospels themselves and see what Jesus says and what Jesus does. And you know what we find when we look there with these questions about identity? We're stunned. Because Jesus is acting on this redemptive stage and He is saying things and He is doing things that only God can do. Only God can do them. I have some of these things listed here. I'll just read them off to you. He teaches... With authority. You remember the Pharisees? I mean, these, these, guys, these guys have gone to seminary, right? And the Pharisees are, how in the world could Jesus teach with this kind of authority? For Robert Jensen, American theologian, I think he said it best. Do you want to know why Jesus could teach with such authority? Because, I mean, what are we talking about? Teach the Old Testament. The law. I mean, how do we understand the Bible? That's what they're wrestling with. And Jesus taught with such authority because he was the author. Wow. I mean, he, he was the authorizing voice. If Colossians 1 is correct, and he is before all things, if that's true, then that is a recognition that Jesus himself, the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, was organically involved in the very inspiration of the Bible that pointed to him. Right. He taught with authority. He was the master or the Lord of the Sabbath. 
He was the Lord of that, the giver of that, ingredient of the law, which is another way of stating He is the lawgiver. What do we see with Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount? He's on the mountain. He's exposing and, and expositing the law, something really that only God could do, and He's filling it in with meaning and hue and understanding that was not available before. Why? Because it's His to do so. The woman comes in. She breaks the alabaster jar. She, she pours it all over Jesus' feet, Mary Magdalene. She washes it with her hair, cr- creates a big kerfuffle, and, um, and some of them begin to grumble. Because Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. And they were angry about that. Why? They knew why. You see, they they didn't miss it. The Pharisees didn't miss it. How could he say he can forgive sins? Only God forgives sins. He's forgiving sins. You know what else Jesus does? He requires faith in him. Do you believe? I remember asking people this before. Do you believe this is true? He requires faith in himself, something, by the way, that's whose proper object is God alone. Salvation uh, depends on him in the Gospels. He stands in a boat and looks at the storm and says, peace be still, and it stops. Which is, by the way, probably a kind of echo, an allusion back to Jonah. I mean, what happened in the book of Jonah? Who stopped the storm there? Yahweh did. Adonai did. Jehovah did. And here is Jesus standing on the storm, in the boat. He tells the storm to be still, and it listens to Him. Do you know what that's a claim? That's a claim of His direct power and lordship as Creator. He's the Creator. And when He spoke, the winds and the waves listened to Him, and they stopped. And I'll tell you what, I think you and I would respond the same way that Peter did. Get away from me. I'm a sinful person. Get away from me. He stops the storms. And the other thing, too, we see, and this is significant, especially from a Jewish perspective, an Old Testament perspective, he is the object of worship. What happens in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5 as we're brought from the messiness of the world right into the very throne room of God? Have you ever noticed that? Chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, Jesus is walking through his churches, and it's not real clean, right? Laodiceans, you've left your first love. The church at Smyrna, you're really clean on the outside, but you're like a dead oak on the inside. I mean, there's some hard stuff going on in there. And by the way, that's not Old Testament God. That's, that's the church that's going on there. That's another lesson. Now, but then you move from that, the messiness and the reality of church life, into Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, and what's going on unhindered in the very throne room of God. Jesus is being worshipped and He's being adored. The one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come, he's on his throne and he's, he's being worshipped. So when we look at the identity of Jesus, what he does, what he says, it forces on to us a recognition that the who-ness of Jesus and the who-ness of God overlap in such a significant way that to speak of the one demands for us to speak of the other. And that's why the early church gave the language to it consubstantial, of the same essence. Because to be God is to be God. And the shared essence between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is an essence of being that who God, who God is. You want to know who God is like? And by the way, I didn't come to as many Lenten lunches as I should have. But it seems like the ones that I did emphasize a very common theme. 
And that was this. I was very, very moved and touched by this. Do you want to know who God is like? Well, then take a hard and long look at Jesus. You want to know who God is like? You look at Him. Because He's the one who's revealed the Father. He's the judge who's been judged. Again, in John chapter 17, Father, I've revealed my, Your name to them. We talked about this last week. Your name. What, they, they knew His name. But I'm revealing to you the, 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 the true nature of Your name. Can I read you a verse out of John 8? I was quite taken by this. John 8, 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Now this is going to sound pretentious, I'm sorry. Um, but I've opened up the Greek Testament to look at this. Right? And this is how it goes. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know, ego a me, comma. Ego a me. Then you will know, I am. It's, by the way, the very words that Jesus said in the garden when they came to Him and they said, Are you Jesus of Nazareth? And He said, ego a me, I am. And what happened? remember what happened to them? And they all fell back. It's a reference back to the divine name. It's a reference back to I am who I am. I will be who I will be. Ego, a me, I am. And what is Jesus saying here? When the Son of Man is lifted up on the cross, then you will know, ego, a me. Then you will know that my identity and the Father's identity overlap the one with the other. It's quite astounding, actually. It also tells us something when we look here at Jesus, that Jesus is revealed finally and ultimately in the cross and in the resurrection and His ascension. That's who we know who, how, how God operates with us. But it also tells us something about the sufficiency of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The ending of John goes something like this, in both in chapter 20 and 21. Many other things could be written. And it goes on at the end of chapter 21 to say, so much so that probably books could be written up to the sky and back. I used to read that text as a superlative. In other words, that's a statement about um, the enormity of Jesus' character and His work that we could just keep on writing ad, ad infinitum and never stop. And while I believe that that's true, I don't think that that's the, the, the sort of intention that's going on there in John 20 and, and 21. I actually think it's, a, it's a, an, an act of negation. And that is, yes, many other things can be written. And boy, we've seen these things show up, haven't we? Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of you name it, whoever. Um, the, the, so many other things can and have been written, but these are written. And I think that, by the way, is a, an ending of the fourfold Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The sufficiency of the Bible to tell us who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And what is the work of the Holy Spirit in this? As we come to, as we're here on Pentecost Day, what is the work of the Spirit? I'll just mention a few things out of John. Number one, the Spirit has promised to bring things to remembrance. Number two, the Spirit 
comforts us in our affliction. In other words, the Spirit will help you remember what Jesus said and why it was important. Jesus is going to, the Spirit was going to comfort you in your affliction. In chapter, in Romans chapter 8, we see that the Spirit prays for us. And lastly, we recognize that the Spirit actually communicates Christ's own presence and being to us. He communicates Jesus to us. When the Great Awakening, uh, I'll close with this, when the Great Awakening broke out um, in New England with the work of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and, and some of these other great voices of, of, of the, the revival period, um, crazy things started happening. The kind of stuff, I think, as Episcopalians that would make you really, really nervous if it happened in church on Sunday morning. Me too. Crazy things started happening. And people began to value the crazy things as a kind of proof of the work of the Spirit. And Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian of America's great theologian, um, did not deny the reality of those crazy things. He didn't do that. But he did make a strong point in his work on what he called the surprising work of conversion and then what he, I think it was called on revival, on, on the surprising narrative of, of revival. And he said, but the true test of the Spirit of God's work in our midst is to see whether or not people are making much of Jesus or not. Much of Jesus. He didn't deny the kind of um, things that blow your hair back. He didn't do that. But he did say, but those things are not the end. The end is, is Jesus being magnified and glorified. That's what's really important. So how do we know that the Spirit of God is at work in our midst, in the life of the church? How can we confess that? I think, and there's a lot more to be said here, but I think one, one very important reflection would be, is Jesus made much of in our midst? Because when Jesus is being made much of and being honored and glorified, when that's happening, we can be assured we could not do that on our own. That is the work of the Spirit of God on our behalf. I'm going to close. Uh, we'll, we'll pass on questions this week. We'll maybe have some time next week. I want to be sensitive to you, to you getting out on time. So let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together and thank you for your wonderful word. The sources and the riches um, are inexhaustible because you are, Lord. Bless us now as we go our way. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.